Well, that is good stuff, is it not? Just good to sing those truths. And uh, just wanted to remind you to be praying for our New Zealand team. We've got half the team already on the ground, the, the Kemrites, um, Tim, and, um, Tim and Madison, and uh, the Fruges, Mark and Deidre and Isaac are already there, uh, getting ready to set up shop there for the conference next week. And then Adam and uh, Vi and my wife will be traveling tonight to get there. And um, Lord willing, I will be traveling Tuesday. A uh, little change of plans here that I need you guys to pray for about, okay? I pulled my passport out of my drawer like I have been doing the last 10 years traveling overseas on missions trips, didn't think anything of it, I pulled it out, was ready to put it in my bag, I thought, I'm just going to check it out again, see how good I look in that picture, right? No, just kidding. Uh, And I noticed that my passport expired last month. I was like, Lord, are you serious? And uh, (laughs) first thing, I thought it was Friday night, everything was closed, and then I thought, federal buildings, right, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, closed. I'm like, Lord... Are you kidding me? Is this like for real? And uh, what, are, what are you up to here? And so Kelly and I prayed and um, Friday night, Saturday morning, and asked the Lord to just do something because we knew this was a, a, a miracle was in order, right? And uh, so the first call I made, um, I got some guy on his cell phone who thankfully was a workaholic and he didn't turn his phone off for Memorial Day weekend. But he was a, uh, he's a uh, passport expediter, very gracious, gave me a lot of good advice, what's the quickest way I could get this thing done and get to New Zealand still and not miss the conference. And so he's going to help me this afternoon, and then Tuesday morning, uh, Lord willing, he's going to be able to expedite a passport for me uh, by 3.30 in the afternoon, and my flight is at 6 at IH. So not too much time to get from the city to the airport, right? And so um, I'm looking for a police escort, you know, so I can just <laughs> get there. Any of, any of you guys have access to that, let me know. But uh, seriously, you know, the Lord is uh, sovereign, is he not? And uh, Kelly and I have been resting in God's sovereignty, uh, meditating on Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but with thanksgiving, right? Uh, let your requests be made known to the God and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ. And so... Uh, somebody asked me how my wife was doing, you know, knowing that, you know, I was going to have to come later. And she said, and I said, you know what, she's doing great because part of what she's been studying to teach over there is all about God's sovereignty. And then she said, yeah, and man's stupidity. (laughs) Leave it to your wife, right? (laughs) To kind of put you in your place. I'm like, got it, hon, thanks. Yeah, probably should have looked at that a few months ago uh, just to make sure. But uh, anyway, we're we're grateful um, that it it appears that God will provide a way. Um, but uh, we do really covet your prayers uh, for that um, Tuesday transaction to get done and then to be able to get up to the airport in time to catch that flight. I would really, really appreciate you guys praying. Uh, I know, listen, this week has just been crazy in the life of our church, and many people are just dealing with capital C crises, okay, major issues that, that this is nothing. <laughs> this is nothing compared to what some of you are dealing with, and we, we get this. We get that, but we would covet uh, your prayers just to, that, that God would just orchestrate that if that be his will. And um, I, I told Adam, I said, anybody who sits, you know, I pity everybody who sits with me on the airplane from, you know, uh, Houston to, to Auckland, uh, because I'm just assuming that that's why I'm, I got my plane delayed 
three days, you know, that God wanted me to talk to this person. So I'm going to, they're going to sit down. I'm like, hi, my name is Ken Raymond. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because maybe that's why my passport got expired and I had to wait for this flight because I needed to talk to you or something. So anyway, uh, you can pray about those opportunities as well. Uh, It's interesting that it takes something like this to heighten your awareness that God's constantly orchestrating our lives, right, to, um, for his glory and our good. So um, we, we, we were confident that he's in all this for, for something. So anyway, um, this morning I want to talk with you about what the Bible has to say about the responsibility that, that God's people have to support God's work through the local church with our financial gifts. That's a, a long way of saying I want to talk about giving this morning. And um, I think giving back to God a portion of the money that he's given to us is one of the fundamental uh, priorities and practices of the church. And you can see where this is going. The, they've asked us to, to, to preach on the church in New Zealand. And so this is one of the things they asked me to address was the this, this, this subject of giving. And uh, I thought this is, this is far more relevant to us I think, than it will be even in New Zealand in light of what the Lord has before us with this opportunity that he's given us to build this building, right, to expand the ministry here. And uh, as you know, uh, if you didn't get the letter already, I sent a letter out this week. It should be in the mail. If you didn't get it yesterday, you'll get it on Tuesday, right, not Monday. Um, But just please read that. And it's really on behalf of the elders just uh, letting you know, if you haven't heard, that we made a decision to go ahead and give the builder the green light to finish up uh, the education portion of that new building, all the classrooms, the bathrooms, the student center, the, the, the resource center and lounge, and, and then even the two offices here retrofitting this building as we break through the wall there with the hallway uh, to finish that up by September 1st. We just didn't feel like it was wise and prudent to start another year of ministry here at Lakeside this fall without that extra space to continue to expand uh, the ministries that the Lord's uh, given, given us here. And so we're still short about $68,000. So we're taking a bold step of faith uh, that God is going to bless us as we continue to give sacrificially and joyfully uh, to Him. Uh, You guys have always been so generous in responding to the need here. And uh, God's work done God's way will never lack God's provision. So uh, we're appealing to you to continue to pray and give throughout the summer months Uh, so that we can have that all paid off by September 1st, and then we'll trust the Lord for the remainder uh, in the future. But just to get into that activity space and that student space is is super vital for us uh, this fall. So all that to say, I think this is a very timely message. This is not just a dry run for New Zealand. This is what we need to be thinking about uh, today as a church. Now, unfortunately, the, the concept of giving or tithes and offerings, as it's often referred to, has been grossly distorted and corrupted throughout church history, um, mainly by greedy false teachers who are in the ministry for the money. From Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, who thought he could purchase the power of God with a few bucks, to Johann Tetzel, who during the days of the Reformation, was the driving force behind the sale of indulgences to build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And he went around the countryside telling people that every time a a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Basically manipulating people to give money, thinking they could buy their loved one's way out of purgatory. 
to obviously modern-day televangelists who live in the lap of luxury, and they promise the, their followers the same kind of prosperity if they would just send them some more money, right? So it's understandable why the subject of giving money to the church has become such a controversial subject. In fact, I think uh, that, that some well-meaning pastors who uh, want to avoid the perception of being a lover of money uh, or to avoid the perception of having a conflict of interest that whenever the pastor preaches on, on, on money or on giving, he's, he's fishing for a raise, right? And that's what he's getting about. That I think, again, some well-meaning pastors fail to, to teach their congregations how to give biblically. And as a result, too often pastors themselves struggle to make ends meet because they're not compensated appropriately, and uh, churches struggle to pay their bills because of a lack of funds. Well, by the grace of God, that's never been the case here at Lakeside Bible Church. God has been so good and so gracious to us, and um, we've always had more than we needed um, as far as uh, His work is concerned. Um, But obviously from books I've read, right, conversations I've had from other people, Uh, This is an issue in the church. In fact, I heard a story about a church uh, board who was frustrated by the lack of giving from the members of their congregation, and so they decided to come up with a new system for taking the offering. Uh, Instead of passing offering plates, which apparently wasn't working, they decided to put a box by the door so people could could give as as they came in or as they went out. But this was no ordinary box like we have in the back of our sanctuary here. Their box was if you dropped in $20, nothing happened. But if you dropped in less than that, a siren went off. And if you walked by and put nothing in it, it took your picture (laughs) and sent it to the church leadership, right? Well, obviously, no church should ever have to resort to rigging their offering box with a siren or a camera to motivate their people to give. Besides... We know the Bible clearly teaches that what you give is ultimately between you and the Lord. And no one else should know what you give or even that you give. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus said, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I think it's interesting that it's become commonplace in the church today to put contributors' names on pews and um, plaques and bricks and stained glass windows and to name schools and, and buildings after large donors to send special letters or make special phone calls to, to the really big givers in the church. And I think these these well-intentioned practices go directly against the very thing that Christ condemned in this passage and unwittingly robs people of their heavenly reward. I think this is just one example of of the fact that many Christians today misunderstand what the Bible teaches about giving. I'll give you another example. That's the concept of tithing, this idea that we're to give 10% of our income back to the Lord. And many good Bible-teaching churches have promoted tithing as the biblical standard for what their members should place in the offering plate. Uh, One of my favorite stories is that of two men who were shipwrecked on a remote island, 
And uh, one of the men was pacing frantically back and forth going, we're going to die. There's no food. There's no water. How is anybody going to ever find us? We're going to die. And the other guy was just propped up calmly under the coconut tree, just chilling. And the other guy got down and he shook him. He said, don't you realize we're going to die? There's no food here. There's no water here. Nobody's ever going to find us. He said, relax. He said, I make $100,000 a week. And the guy's like, well, that's great. That's not going to help us here. He says, no, you don't get it. I make $100,000 a week, and I tie the tenth of that to the church. My pastor will find me. (laughs) Well, all joking aside, I think many Christians assume that giving 10% is the mandatory amount that God requires from every believer. But the practice of tithing as a permanent principle that is binding on all Christians today is not taught in Scripture. Some of you may sound, think that sounds radical. It sounds un, even unbiblical. Well, let me explain. The concept of tithing is a biblical concept taught in the Old Testament. But nowhere in the New Testament does God give a fixed amount or percentage that we're required to give. We're simply told to give freely and generously to the Lord. And through the personal work of Jesus Christ, the concept of tithing has been replaced by what is sometimes referred to as grace giving. Grace giving. And when you understand the concept of grace giving, which we're going to talk about today, rather than asking the question, how much does God expect me to give? The question simply becomes, how does God want me to give? And while the New Testament does not mandate how much we should give, it does give us principles by which we can determine how we should give. And the premier passage on giving in the New Testament is... 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And and these two chapters really contain the most concentrated section of principles on giving found anywhere in the entire Bible. And uh, we're going to see this morning 12 principles for biblical giving that will instruct us and inspire us to be generous, joyful, sacrificial givers. Now let me give you... um, just a quick background of this passage as we, as we get into this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. One of the great uh, projects that God used the Apostle Paul to accomplish on his third missionary journey was to collect an offering for the persecuted, famine-stricken saints in Jerusalem. And so as he traveled around to the various churches that he had previously planted, Paul asked the believers to contribute something uh, to help their impoverished brothers and sisters who were struggling and suffering in Jerusalem. And so when he visited the local churches in the region of Macedonia, uh, he was absolutely blown away that in spite of their own poverty, they gave more generously, more joyously, more sacrificially than anyone he had ever seen. And so Paul used their example to instruct and inspire the church in Corinth to give to the collection for the Jerusalem church. Paul had already told the Corinthian church about this collection in a previous letter that he had written to them, probably the lost letter, the letter that we don't have preserved in in the canon, but he mentions it in 1 Corinthians 16. So just quickly turn back to 1 Corinthians 16, just by way of introduction here. Paul says, as he's wrapping up this letter, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, 
He's talking about this collection for the, 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 the saints in Jerusalem. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. In other words, I've already told you about this. Let me just remind you as I wrap up this letter. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. And so here we have our first principle, even before we get to 2 Corinthians 8 9, we have our first principle here of biblical giving, and that is to give regularly. You need to give regularly. Notice it says, on the first day of the week. Um, that's when the early church gathered together for worship. Um, Sunday, right, because uh, of the Lord's resurrection, uh, they moved uh, the, the day of worship from the Saturday Sabbath to the Sunday worship service. And so whenever they gathered together on the first day of the week, they would have instruction, they would have fellowship, they would have prayer, they would have a meal followed by the Lord's Supper, Acts 2.42. But notice what he says here, on the first day of every week, in other words, when you come together to worship, He says, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. So Paul commands here everyone to set aside a certain amount of money and bring it to church with them every Sunday. You see that? On the first day of every week, each one of you, everyone every Sunday. So everyone in the church should play a role in giving towards the Lord's work, whether you're a child, a teenager, uh, a person on a fixed income, even those experiencing financial difficulties. Uh, that's no excuse not to be part of this command or to obey this command. Um, and typically, I think people give to the church based on when they get paid, uh, whether it's once a week or twice a month or once every month. Um, my suggestion to you is that you try to spread out your giving over the month so that you have something to bring with you Every week, every Sunday, uh, just to be in line with this principle here of giving regularly. Giving, uh, I think, is such so much an act of worship, right? It's just as much an act of worship as singing, as praying, as listening to the word preached. And so putting money in the offering box or the offering plates is, is a vital part of our weekly worship experience before the Lord. So we should never come to the Lord empty-handed, right? Like, you, it would be odd for you to show up some Sunday and go, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pray today, or I'm not going to sing today, or I'm not going to listen to the sermon today. I'm going to do everything else, but I'm not going to do that. It would be like something's missing, right? And so, again, I think if we, if we miss a Sunday because maybe we're sick or we're out of town on vacation, we should make sure to make that up either before we leave or, or when we get back, um, I mean, you think about your house payment, right? We all have a house payment. Most of us have a house payment, right? And if you go out of town or you're sick, it doesn't change the fact you still got to pay your house payment, right? And you're, you're diligent to make sure you pay it before you leave or, or as soon as you get back, right? Um, should our giving to God and His house be done any less responsibly? And so I think too many Christians just give when they feel convicted or maybe even when they're instructed to give. Uh, so their giving is more sporadic and impulsive, whereas Paul said here that our giving should be done in a regular, systematic way. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. So we give regularly. Now, look at verse 3, and this will make our transition to 2 Corinthians. He says, When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. In other words, hey, when I get there, you can assign someone uh, to come with me, either to deliver this offering 
themselves or, or they can accompany me. Basically, he's just covering his tail here and he doesn't want anybody to start wondering whether or not they can trust the Apostle Paul, right? But you assign the guy to come with me, he'll be my source of credibility, my source of accountability, and, and I'm fine with that. Verse 5, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And so he's telling them as he's finishing up this letter, hey, I'll, I'll see you in a little bit. Uh, I've got to go to Macedonia, and then, then I'll come see you guys uh, in Corinth. Well, that brings us to 2 Corinthians Chapter, chapter 8, notice he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So now he's giving them an update of what he experienced while he was visiting the churches there in, in, in Macedonia. Of course, this is um, the northern province of Greece. The churches there were the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Berea. And uh, as we'll see here, when he had originally told them about this relief project or this offering uh, in either the lost letter or 1 Corinthians, they had, had responded with great eagerness and were, were excited to contribute a generous amount of money. And, and, and yet since then, uh, we know 2 Corinthians is all about Paul defending his ministry against false teachers. So false teachers had infiltrated the church in Corinth and undermined Paul's ministry among the believers there. And they were spreading all sorts of lies and, and rumors about Paul, that he was just a money-hungry huckster, that he, he was in it for the money, you can't trust the guy, he's trying to fleece you, and, and all this stuff. And so this apparently had sidetracked the Christians there in, in Corinth from following through on their original intention to give a substantial offering. And so Paul sent Titus uh, to deliver the, what we know as the severe letter, um, and as we will see, um, to also encourage them to follow through on the collection they had promised to give. And so now Paul was writing to them possibly for the fourth time, okay, and encouraging them to finish up the collection and have it ready for him when he came. And in order to motivate the Corinthian Christians to follow through here, he uses the example of the Macedonian churches and, and, and really challenges them to give in like manner because those churches gave unlike anyone Paul had ever seen. And you say, well, what motivated them to give in such an exemplary way? Well, I think the answer is in the, in the phrase that's used three times in these two chapters, and that's the phrase, the grace of God. The grace of God. Notice verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 9, verse 14. While they also, by prayer and on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. This is where we get the idea of grace giving, that this was simply, their, their generosity was simply an evidence of God's grace. They couldn't take credit for it, right? God got all the glory, and it was just His graciousness to them that made them such generous, joyful, sacrificial givers. He enabled them to be that. And they really are the model, not just for the Corinthians, but also for us today. Um, this is how we should give. So we already found out we should give regularly, right? Secondly, we should give generously. Generously. Notice, again, verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the church of Macedonia. 
In other words, their amazing generosity, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. I mean, that, that, what is, that verse is amazing because it's talking about opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got great ordeal of affliction, you've got abundance of joy, you've got deep poverty, and you've got a wealth of liberality. What in the world is going on here? How, how can these things, how can affliction and abundance of joy exist in the same church body? How can deep poverty and a wealth of liberality exist in the same church body? And yet it did in the churches in Macedonia. These believers were destitute. They had experienced the ravages of war. They had been plundered by the Romans. And it says that they were in deep poverty. This is like the worst kind of poverty. This is like severe poverty. This is as bad as it can get where you really had become a beggar. And they had resorted to begging, but not begging to get money, begging to give money. We're going to see that in a moment. Because here was a group of people who faced these insurmountable difficulties that should have discouraged them from even thinking about being able to give. They could have made excuses, right? That, hey, you know, there is the need. I appreciate the need. Thanks for that opportunity to give. But, man, we just can't afford it right now. I mean, come on, we better go hold on to what we do have because it's very little. We don't know what the future holds. Um, we, can't give the, we can't give right now. Maybe, uh, maybe in the future we can give, right? They, they didn't offer any of these excuses. Why? Because they understood that giving is not a matter of what you have, but it's a matter of what's in your heart. It's not what's in your pocket, right? It's what's in your heart. And even though they hardly had anything to live on, they had, ex- they had extremely generous hearts. You know, I'll never forget when I traveled to India, one of the first times I was there, and we took the children from this orphanage out to a park to play one afternoon, and we stopped by the bakery, and we got all these sweets and candy and donuts and pastries, and we sat the kids down in the park, and we gave these kids uh, these gifts, and, and it was like Christmas to them. I mean, this is like rare for them to ever even to, to eat something like this. And as we were walking through the, the crowd of kids uh, and, and just making sure they had everything they needed, like... Every kid was, was lifting up whatever they were eating and offering it to us. And I was like, this is amazing. And these kids are dirt poor. They have nothing. And yet their, their initial response is to be liberal, to be generous, and to want to share. And I was so convicted by that. And you can imagine when I got home, my kids heard that story, right? <laughs> About how important it is to be generous, right? Especially you knuckleheads that have everything, right? You could ever want, right? But uh, notice he says, it, with the wealth of liberality... They, they, they just overflowed. Their poverty overflowed. Poverty doesn't usually overflow, right? Poverty overflowed with a wealth of liberality, generosity, sincerity. Um, uh, this was just an amazing, generous spirit. And so we need to give generously, okay? That's the second principle, give generously. Number three, give sacrificially. Notice verse three. He says, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. In other words, they gave sacrificially. They gave more than they actually had to give. Um, They pushed giving past the point where the figures added up, right? They didn't add up. They couldn't give. They shouldn't have gave. It appeared unreasonable, but they did anyway. And unfortunately, the typical practice of Christians in the West, i.e. Americans, right? We give out We give out of what's left over after spending what we want on ourselves. Rarely do we give any amount that would necessitate a reduced standard of living. 
to give sacrificially, I think, means that in order to give, you have to maybe alter your lifestyle. You have to lower your standard of living. Maybe you deny yourself uh, certain things that you would like, places you would want to go, you don't. Things that you want to do, but you can't. You maybe sacrifice that new house, maybe that new car, that new boat, that new wardrobe. It may mean that you sell something of great value and give the money to the Lord. I mean, this is a foreign concept, unfortunately, to most Christians in America. Randy Alcorn is probably one of the most convicting authors when it comes to giving. Uh, He's written an outstanding book called The Treasure Principle. If you've not read it yet, pick up a copy today. It's a short little book, but it'll change your life. Literally, it'll change your life. Best little book I ever read on giving. In fact, we gave it a copy to everybody in the church when we first started the church and built this building uh, by the grace of God, debt-free, but we gave that book and said, hey, this is the treasure principle. Let's own it. Let's live it. And let's see what the Lord can do through us. And it just was a neat, neat book to read through. And, but listen to what he has to say. He says, much of our giving in the Western world is not giving. It's merely discarding. Donating secondhand goods to church rummage sales and benevolence organizations and missions is certainly better than throwing them away. But giving away something we didn't want in the first place is not giving. It's selective disposal. In fact, this sort of giving is often done because we want a newer or better version of what we're giving away. Ooh, that's convicting, right? Sacrificial giving is giving away what we would rather keep. And I think we all appreciate the example of David, right? When someone wanted to offer him a field for free. They wanted to honor their king and say, oh, no, no, we're not going to take any money for this. You can just have this. And what did David say? He said, no way. He said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. What's it costing you? right? To invest in the kingdom of the Lord. We need to give sacrificially. Number four, we need to give voluntarily. We need to give voluntarily. Notice again the last part of verse three. He says, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Now check this out. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Paul didn't have to manipulate them or to intimidate them to give. They gave voluntarily of their own accord. He didn't have to bribe them with some kind of holy hardware. Hey, you sent us 20 bucks and we'll send you this little shiny angel thing, right? Just watch TV and you'll get lots of ideas of what I'm talking about, right? This holy handkerchief, right? You send me this money, I'll give you this holy handkerchief. Um, This vial of special anointing oil or whatever it is, right? They didn't have to bribe them to get money, nor did he use any guilt trip to pressure them to give. On the other hand, they pressured him to let them give. They pleaded with him to let them give to this relief project. They didn't see giving as an obligation. They saw it as a privilege that they didn't want to miss out on. I mean, nobody had to twist their arm here. They they wanted to give. It was not a have to it was, a, it was a want to. It, it's really the difference between writing. See, this is the difference. There should be a difference when you write your electric bill and when you write your check for church. Right? One should be like, oh, why do I, oh, man, what, what, my kids need to turn their lights off. Man, they got to stop playing. Right? It's, it's a drudgery to, to write that electric bill, right? But when you sit down to write that check for church, that should be like your funnest check to write. That it should be, you should be excited. It's like, right, it's like a birthday present, right? You, you love to go out and buy the birthday present. There's a want to there. It's not a have to, right? So we need to give voluntarily. And well, fifthly, we need to give sequentially. Sequentially. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 5. He says, in this, 
not as we had expected. They didn't give as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. See, the the Macedonian Christians, they understood the proper order for giving to the Lord, that they gave themselves to the Lord first, and then they gave their money. They had done what Paul commanded the believers to do in Romans 12.1, right? I urge you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your what? Your bodies, yourselves, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Listen, look up. God doesn't want your money. He wants you. Okay? He doesn't want your money. He wants you. And in fact, if he doesn't have our hearts, that he's not the least bit interested in what is in our pocketbooks or in our checkbooks, okay? That's why I appreciate whenever I visit a, a church, which is rare to visit another church, but they pat, whenever they pass the offering plates and the pastor will say, listen, if you're visiting with us today, I just want to you know, encourage you to all you need to put in there is, 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 your, is your visitor card. Again, it's just acknowledging there may be some unbelievers there, and we don't want anybody fishing in their pocket, giving out of obligation, thinking that somehow they got to, you know, oh, here comes the blood. What am I going to do? What are people going to think of me? It's the same thing as, as communion, right? We say, listen, if you're not a believer, just let those plates pass. It's no big deal. This is not for you. This is for believers. Same thing when that, those offering uh, plates pass. In the church. This is not for unbelievers. This is for, for believers. Giving money does not earn Anybody favor with God. No amount of money can buy your way to heaven. You could be the greatest philanthropist, can I say that? Philanthropist in the universe, give more money to charity, charity than anybody else, and you will still die and spend eternity in hell if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So before you can give gifts to God, you need to refer, first receive the gift of salvation, the gift that he give, has given you, that he offers you through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So I'll just ask you this morning, have you received the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ? Have you received that? That's all you need to hear today. If, you've, if you're not a Christian, that's all you need to hear about, from this message. That's the only line you need to remember, is to receive the gift of God, to give God your life. That needs to be your first priority. So give sequentially. And number six, give sincerely. Give sincerely. Look at verse six. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Just, uh, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work. Also, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. According to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we know that the Corinthians excelled in every other spiritual virtue Uh, Paul appealed to them to also excel in their love by excelling in their giving. So the offering that they would give would prove the sincerity of their love for God, their love for their fellow believers. Again, I think that's important to to acknowledge that, that how much we give proves how much we love God. Now, again, you say, you don't know how much I love God, Ken, but I can't give that much. Don't miss the point, okay? Okay. Don't, don't forget the story of the widow's mite, right? She gives, gave the least amount of money that day, but in God's eyes, it was the most, right? 
because of her heart of love. It was an act of love and worship to the Lord. So in regards to giving, it's not the amount that matters, it's the motive. Again, God is far more concerned about why we give than how much we give. And so the question really is, why are you giving? Are you giving to relieve guilt? Are you giving to keep from being punished by God, to be thought highly of by other people? Or are you just giving because you love Jesus, right? You just, you just want to show God how much you love Him. So you need to give sincerely from the heart. Number seven, you need to give proportionately. Proportionately. Look at verse 10. We're going to skip over verse 9. We'll get back to that. Verse 10, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now, finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equal equality. At this present time, your abundance being a a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. The basic principle taught throughout Scripture is that we are to give according to what God gives us. 1 Corinthians 16.2, we already looked at that, that, that Paul instructed the Corinthians to give as he may prosper, right? In other words, God doesn't expect us to give him what we don't have, what he's not given to us. We, we shouldn't go into debt, right, to give. We're not asking all of you to max out your credit cards, get some cash advance, and let's pay off this building, right? No, we're not doing that. God simply expects his people to give back to him based on what he gives to them. And if he gives you a little, you give a little. If he gives you a lot, you give a lot. That's the principle. And the more you're given, the more you should give. Unfortunately, the statistics show that the poorest Christians give the highest amount of their income to the church and the wealthiest Christians give the lowest amount of their income to the church. In fact, Statistics also show that the more people make, the less they give. That's why I appreciate the radical example of a guy like R.G. Letourneau. You may not have heard of that name, but you probably know Letourneau University up in Longview. He was the founder of, the, of, that, of that Christian college. He was also the inventor of these large earth-moving uh, equipment machines, through which he made millions of dollars. Um, I just ran into somebody, I'm trying to remember who it was, who, who worked for R.G. Letourneau. His dad, I think, worked for R.G. Letourneau. He was telling me the guy was a fascinating guy. He'd be sitting in his bathtub, you know, just kind of chilling, and all of a sudden he'd yell out, hey, bring me my legal pad and pencil, and he'd have some crazy idea of some new contraption or some new invention or some new plan, and he'd sketch it out, and next thing you know, he's making millions off of it. Just a, a God-gifted guy. And, and, and as he acquired more and more wealth, unlike most people whose standard of living rises as their income rises, he chose to maintain the same standard of living. Never necessarily went out and bought the new house, the nicer car, the nicer clothes, the more expensive suit, whatever, right? He just kept living at the same level and he eventually got to the place where he was giving 90% of his income to God and he was living off 
Talk about flipping that whole tithing thing on his head, right? Someone asked him one time, how is it that you give away so much money and you, yet you have so much left? And he replied, I suppose it's like this. I shovel it out, God shovels it in, and he's got a bigger shovel than I do. <laughs> the point is you can't outgive God, right? And, um, and so we need, to, we, need to give, we need to give proportionately, right, as the Lord prospers us. Just for the sake of time, we'll just breeze through verses 16 through 24, which again are just some, uh, some instruction about giving wisely and carefully and knowledgeably. And, uh, and, and even here uh, in these verses, Paul talks about this unnamed man who must have been well known to the Corinthians, and this man was maybe the guy that they selected to be his accountability uh, for he and Titus as they delivered the money to Jerusalem. Again, Paul was protecting himself from any possible accusations about mishandling funds, right? It's very important that church leaders uh, remain above reproach when it comes to money. That's why don't ever try to hand me any money. Don't ever try to hand me a check. Don't say, hey, Pastor, where, you know, where, where, can you give this to someone? No, here's an envelope. You, you figure it out, okay? Because, uh, you know, give it to that person. Let them get accused of embezzling church funds. But I'm not going to get accused of that, Right? <laughs> The point is, I try to stay out of the finances as much as possible. I don't even know what any of you gives. Never looked at a spreadsheet of the giving record and say, oh, okay, I've got to spend a little more time with that person because they're kind of floating the boat here, you know. And No, that's, I don't even know. And, and it's, it's better that way. Um, it's the way the Lord intended it to be. And just to stay above reproach in this whole regard. Uh, look at verse chapter 9. Picking it up here, for it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying that you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence." Now, Paul's really um, <laughs> turning down the screws here, and he's basically saying um, that, hey, just so you know, that I used you, right, and your example of your generosity to inspire the Macedonians to give to the offering. And they, they heard what you were going to give, and that fired them up that they wanted to give. And, oh, by the way, they're coming back with me. Some of them are coming back, and, and they're going to wonder why... You didn't give more than they did, um, so just so you know, I'm just warning you, they're coming, and you better get your act together, right, because you don't want to look like a stupid face, right, especially when you were their model. So it's interesting how Paul was using these, two church, these, these groups of churches to motivate one another and stirring them up. And so he goes on, so I thought it necessary, verse 5, to urge the brethren that they should Go on ahead to you and arrange before on your previously promised bountiful gift. There's a word we're looking for. So that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this is, I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So this is our eighth principle. You need to give bountifully. Give bountifully. Now, we know that this, there, there are some preachers and teachers today who take verses like verse 6, um, about the sowing and reaping thing, and they teach that God promises to make you rich if you give money, right? It's called the prosperity gospel, that uh, 
and you can just turn on the TV, Christian Network, and you'll find them talking about, listen, you, you give money and God will give back to you. Now, nowhere in the Bible are we told to give to get. That's pretty much the mantra of the prosperity gospel, right? Is you give to get. But the Bible makes it crystal clear, it does make crystal clear, that if we give to God, He will bless us. So there is a, there is a, a sense that this is true. Um, it may not always be financial or material blessings, it, it, but it always involves spiritual blessings. But, but Paul uses an, an agricultural analogy here of, of sowing and reaping. We know the principle, you reap what you sow. And so he says, listen, if you sow a little, you're going to reap a little. If you sow a lot, you'll reap a lot. Uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. I don't know if you've done any kind of farming. You've collected anything in baskets, right? But if you've got some fruit or some vegetables in a basket and you kind of fill it up, it looks full until you do what? Shake it, right? The stuff settles, right? And then you can even push it down a little bit and then you can put more on and then next thing you know, you're overflowing, right? That's the idea that God blesses us, right, when we give back to Him. I was talking to a gentleman recently who was just saying, you know, in passing, how God was just blowing his mind at how uh, he was blessing his company, his business. And he couldn't believe how God was just blessing him financially. And I said, I'll tell you exactly why God's blessing you, is because he trusts you with money. Because he knows you're not going to take it and squander it on yourself or on frivolous things, but you're going to give that money back to the him. And I think that's a true principle, right? Like an R.G. Letourneau, right? God found a guy that he could trust with millions of dollars because he knew he was going to use it to invest in God's kingdom. The question is, are you somebody that God can trust, right, to bless financially so that you'll give that money back to him, give bountifully? Number nine, give purposely, give purposely. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart Okay, that's important here. We shouldn't, we shouldn't give impulsively. We already talked about that. We should give purposely. I think there's a lot of Christians who really don't ever think about um, what they're going to give on any given Sunday, and the first time they think about it is when they see the ushers coming down the aisles with the offering plates, right? And uh, what Paul was implying here is that we should carefully and prayerfully think ahead of time what God would have us give. We should, we should have some kind of predetermined plan of action. We should already know how much money we're going to give before we ever get to church. And the only thing that might change that is if you hear of another need that uh, maybe you're made aware of and you sense God prompting you to, to meet that need, then, then He, and He's given you the resources to, to do that, then, then at that point you might give above and beyond what you already um, have, have planned to give. You say, well, how do I determine that amount? You're telling me I need to, I need to plan an amount, be purposeful? Yeah. Pick a, pick a number, pick a figure. You say, how do, how, do, how do you determine how much you should give? <laughs> well, as I already mentioned, nowhere in the New Testament are we given an amount, right? A figure, a percentage that we're required to give. We're simply told to give freely and generously to the Lord in response to the grace that He has lavished on us in Christ. And I would just say this, that the 10th, the 
tithe of the Old Testament, which, by the way, if you study that, it was really, when you add it all up, all the different tithes and offerings that the Israelites were supposed to give, it's not 10%, it's twice as much. It's like 23 25% that they were supposed to be giving of their income. But let's just say it's 10%. I think that really serves as a good starting point of what we should give. I mean, surely those of us who live on this side of the cross who have experienced the grace of God in Christ should be willing to give at least as much as those who lived under the law. And yet if you look at studies on giving in the church in America, the average Christian gives between 2 and 3% of their income. I mean, that, something's wrong when New Testament believers, right, who have the Spirit of God in them, right, give only a small fraction of Old Testament, that, that, that Old Testament believers gave, especially when we live in a far more affluent society than ancient Israel. The bottom line is that God expects every one of us to purpose in the privacy of our own hearts what we're going to give and to give it anonymously, right? Not to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, Matthew chapter 6. Number 10, we need to give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. Look at verse 7 again. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We, we should give cheerfully, not grudgingly. That word grudgingly literally means grief, sorrow, sadness. In other words, you're giving regretfully, reluctantly. Instead, you should give cheerfully, he says. Be a cheerful giver, which, by the way, that word in the, in the original language is where we get the English word hilarious. I mean, we should be laughing when we're putting stuff in the offering box because we're having so much fun. It's so joyful. It's so cheerful that we get to give to to the work of the Lord. We should be laughing. We should be, our heart uh, is just so enthusiastic and joyful. God loves that kind of heart. And I think it's those people who who give this way, in in a hilarious way, uh, who discover that nothing brings greater joy than being able to meet needs and support God's work through their gifts. I mean, it's a ball. It's a kick. You should try it sometime. Number 11, we need to give confidently. And this is an important principle to keep in mind. Verse 8, and God is able. We just sung that, right? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. The Corinthians up up to this point may have been getting nervous as they sat there in their pew and this letter was being read and they're thinking, wow, Paul's really like, really wanting us to go for it here with this this giving, this gift, this offering. I'm a little concerned that we're going to have enough left over for ourselves, right, to take care of our needs and they're they're, they're not, they're practical needs, we need to take care of our families, right? Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that they could have confidence to give generously, to give sacrificially, why? Because God would provide for their every need. You never have to worry that if you give to the Lord, that you're not going to have enough to meet your own needs. God is always faithful to replenish whatever we give away, and He will make sure that we have everything we need for life and for godliness. Not only does how much we give prove how much we love God, it also proves how much we trust God. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. What are all these things? The context is what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? Where are we going to live? What are we going to drive? Right? Don't worry about these things. The world worries about these things. You seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be taken care of. Paul said in Philippians 4.19 that God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So give confidently. And then lastly, and maybe most importantly, give thankfully. Give thankfully, and here we come to the ultimate motivation for why we should give back to the Lord what he's given to us. Notice the theme here in verses 10 through 15 of thanksgiving. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Interesting what's going on here. I think that the Jewish Christians who were in need in Jerusalem were skeptical of the legitimacy of the Gentile converts. Like, are these guys really saved? Uh, especially believers in Corinth, because they had some problems in their church, didn't they? They were messed up. And so they're like, surely those people aren't believers. Don't associate them with us. And so Paul was saying, listen, this is a simple way. This gift to them is a simple way to demonstrate to these Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem that you are the real deal, that your conversion is legit, you're truly saved. And also, it's, it's, an, it's an act of worship, and it's a way to thank God for His gift to you. The word thanksgiving used three times here. And I think giving is one of the most tangible ways of expressing our gratitude to God for all that He's given us in Christ. The larger the sacrifice you make in giving back to God. Notice I didn't say the larger the offering, right? Because I don't want you to think that the person who gives the most, right, is the most thankful because some of us don't have the means to give that much, but the larger the sacrifice that we make in giving to God, the louder we're saying thank you to God for the sacrifice He made in giving us His Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul really concluded his instruction regarding grace giving by looking at the supreme expression of grace giving, and that is God Himself giving his son Jesus Christ to live and die in the place of sinners like us. Notice verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. All this talk about us giving and the Corinthians giving ultimately led to Paul talking about, hey, and let's bottom line, let's never forget, you know, how thankful we should be for the gift that God has given us. God generously and joyously and sacrificially gave us his one and only son to die on the cross so that we could be saved. And ultimately, Jesus himself is the example of what it means to be a generous, joyous, sacrificial giver. We skipped really the key verse in this whole passage, 
back in chapter 8, verse 9. Let's read it now. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul is, again, just describing how Jesus Christ laid aside his glorious wealth in heaven and came to dwell among us here on our impoverished planet. And he was tempted, he was ridiculed, he was persecuted, he was dragged through an unfair trial, he was whipped, he was beaten, he was nailed to a cross. And it was there on that cross that he suffered the wrath of God, the wrath of his own father, so that those of us who would turn from our sin and trust in him as our personal Lord and Savior would be delivered from our sinful poverty and enjoy eternal riches with him in heaven someday. I mean, when Paul thought about this, it was indescribable to him. It was, it was too much for words. It left him speechless. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is beyond description. It's humanly impossible for anyone, no matter how articulate, how eloquent they are, to fully describe God's gracious gift of salvation in Christ. But it's our profound gratitude for this salvation that should be what ultimately motivates, motivates us to give unsparingly back to God. How could we ever withhold anything from Him who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. God didn't spare his own son for you. What are you willing to spare for him? What are you willing to spare so that others can come to know Jesus Christ like you know him? What are you willing to spare so that God's work can be accomplished here in this community and around the world? Can you spare $100? Can you spare $1,000? Can you spare $10,000? Maybe some of you could spare $100,000. That's between you and the Lord. But when we consider the incredible sacrifice that God made for us, no sacrifice will be too great for us to make for Him. George Mueller, we all heard of him, right? Legendary in his trust in God to provide for his needs. But what most people don't know about George Mueller is he was one of the most generous givers in the history of the church. Even though he had all these needs, he was constantly giving money away. And this is what he said. He said, if we do not give, we shall find that our brief life is gone before we are aware of it, and that in return, we have done little for that adorable one who bought us with his precious blood and to whom belongs all we have and all we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of the Macedonian churches and how their example continues to resonate down through church history to us today. Lord, we should be instructed today. We should be inspired today. Lord, I pray we would be properly, purely motivated, Lord, to give back to you what you have given to us. And uh, Lord, I pray most importantly that if there's anyone here today who who is yet to receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. And Lord, I also pray that uh, you would be gracious to us, that you would pour out your grace in our lives as individuals and as a church, 
And that these next three months that we would see you do powerful, dramatic, miraculous things. Lord, in bringing in the remaining funds that we need to finish this building. Father, and ultimately so that you might receive the glory and the honor. Lord, we don't want any of that because we know this is all your work. And so help us to give in in like manner as these Macedonians, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.